Okay, I have my personal privilege to uh, introduce the next speaker. He was a uh, supervising physician of mine. He is a fantastic, very pro PA physician. Um, he, Dr. Yu is board certified. I, dermatologist in private practice in Bethesda, Maryland. He received his medical degree with honors at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and completed his internship in internal medicine at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. He received his residency training in dermatology at Columbia's, uh, Columbia University St. Luke's Roosevelt Medical Center where he served as chief resident. He then completed his fellowship in Mohs Micrographic Surgery at the Center for Laser and Dermatologic Surgery in New York. He has a special interest in allergies and his manifestations on the skin. Please welcome Dr. Yu. Thank you, Lauren, for those kind words. Um, so you may be asking yourself, uh, why is a Mohs surgeon kind of talking about skin allergy? And I, there's a pretty interesting story, and in fact, actually, the AV guy in the back just told me to turn off my cell phone uh, prior to coming up here, and I was a little hesitant because the reason I got into a lot more interest in allergy was actually at a uh, conference. I was in a most meeting in Phoenix, Arizona, and I get a call from my wife frantically uh, saying that my daughter, who was 10 months at the time, mouth was swollen and she wasn't uh, uh, kind of doing too well. And I said, what happened? She said, you know, my son Ethan was eating his peanut butter sandwich and she went by and snatched it and started kind of gnawing on it. And then next thing you know, half her face was swollen. So fortunately, you know, we gave her some, uh, we had some Benadryl in the house. She, she brought her to the uh, pediatrician, uh, wasn't anaphylactic, uh, but we did find out she was allergic to peanuts. And as most of you know, uh, if you or yourself or one of your loved one has had a medical condition, um, you become very familiar with that condition. Uh, you start doing research on it. So right at that meeting, that's what smartphones are for, I started looking through and you know, reading uh, PubMed and like Dr. Fleischer say, even Googling things uh, and try to figure out, you know, is this something that we ha kind of have to deal with long term? And at least the results that I read uh, doing that couple hours lecture, which I really didn't pay too much attention to, uh, after that point, um, suggested that you know, food allergy in general, uh, some are better than others, and certainly nuts and shellfish type of uh, allergies are not commonly outgrown. So you know, kind of on the flight back and talking to my wife the whole time, uh, it, it kind of, you had an uneasy feeling, because uh, you hear about these horror stories about you know, this, little, uh, this girl kissing a boyfriend, and. Uh, all those stories are not very pleasant for a parent to hear. So the more we kind of dove into it, and I spoke to a lot of, uh, you know, I, when I talk about allergies, I would distinct, uh, make a distinction between ear, nose, and throat allergies, as well as immunologist allergies, uh, and you understand why in a second. Um, and most of the friends that I was talking to were immunologist allergies, and then, you know, I called them and um, you know, talk to them at night. I said, you know, what, what can we do? And the main thing was, you know, you try to avoid, get a bunch of EpiPen, put it everywhere, and, uh, you know, and see what happens. And we'll do some blood tests and prick tests and see if we can challenge her if her numbers drop. And uh, so my wife, who's uh, already a type A person, um, she got very neurotic, you know, hearing this. She said, okay, you know, this life or death. And, uh, I said, if you have the EpiPen, you're okay, but she's, you know, somebody who's not in the medical field can be very anxious. 
So she kind of really sheltered her, and everywhere we went with dinner and lunch, uh, she would wipe down the table and you know, do all the things that uh, parents uh, sometimes would do to protect their kids. And over the past kind of, uh, over the two years afterwards, she basically would, uh, she had her RAS test number drop, and it practically went to zero, it was undetectable. And, you know, looking at the research, it suggests that if your RAS number is under five, which puts you on a very small group, you have about uh, maybe 20% of outgrown the nut allergy. So, you know, I spoke to my uh, friend who was the allergy. He said, well, that's great. You know, your RAS test is negative. You know, let's challenge her, and there's a good chance you'll outgrow it. And uh, so a couple teaspoons into the challenge, her voice started changing, and uh, so needless to say, she failed the challenge. And at that point, I said, you know, there's got to be a better way. Uh, and almost feeling a little desperate, but uh, fortuitously, uh, we, you know, we joined these allergy forums, and we had some friends who have kids with allergies. And, you know, you probably guys see a lot of kids now, and they're just a tremendous increase in not only food allergies, but asthma and eczema. And this parent uh, apparently had done a lot of research as well, and their kid had multiple allergies. My daughter, fortunately, just had one, but this kid had wheat, milk, uh, had nuts, uh, even had some um, kind of unusual fish allergies. So, you know, you're like, what, what can you really eat? And uh, so their parents are, you know, uh, pretty desperate. So they kind of looked around and did a lot of searching, and they're the one that, this is a non-medical prof uh, professional, it's an attorney, of all things. Uh, he kind of told me about this uh, uh, sublingual immunotherapy. I said, well, I heard of immunotherapy. And for those of you who work with, uh, you know, allergists have, you know, know that these, there are these uh, subcutaneous injections that you can give kids uh, over the age of six uh, and adults uh, weekly to try to desensitize the patient. Um, not very practical, kind of have to go in every week, but it works uh, for some allergies, but they, they would never do it for food allergies. So uh, having heard about the, my friend and how their kid responded, because up to that point they had been doing it for several years, and they had outgrown almost every allergy except wheat. And uh, so I said, why wheat? He said, oh, that's the one we haven't treated. Uh, we're taking a step at a time. I said, you know, I said, I never heard of this. He said, well, you know, neither did a lot of the allergists. She said, I'm actually hiding that information from my allergist at Hopkins, because uh, I heard a friend who, you know, told him about using that, and uh, he dismissed him as a patient, because he wasn't following uh, the protocol that the immunologist allergist at Hopkins was recommending. So, you know, I think at that point, I said, well, you know, you get this big institution, Hopkins, and and I trained there, I knew the pe some of the people there, and I said, well, it, you know, how can there be uh, data to suggest that it's helpful and not recognized by such a big um, kind of allergy uh, uh, society? And, you know, I think as we go through the history of it, and this is only my opinion, but as you go through the history and from what I kind of learned, it kind of makes sense uh, as far as the kind of the divide among the two groups of allergies uh, in the area. And um, so subsequently, I actually went up to, um, I don't know if anybody's from Wisconsin, I actually went to a small town in La Crosse, Wisconsin, 
where they're actually doing this type of um, uh, you know, immunotherapy, and they had an annual conference. Uh, and at that conference, it was about 40, uh, 40 physicians. Most of it was uh, ear, nose, and throat allergists. Uh, there was a couple, you know, family practitioner. I was the only dermatologist there. And, uh, but, you know, I went in with a very uh, skeptical but open uh, mind because I said, you know, because you hear people say, oh, there's, these are potions made in the back, like witch's brew or something. These are not FDA approved. You know, it's too dangerous. So I said, well, you know, let me go see and at least uh, see what the data um, uh, shows because in the end, um, if the data shows that it works, it may be more of a dogmatic issue where it's very difficult for established um, kind of medical belief to change, and it takes time. And I think even from the point when I started doing this about uh, four to five years ago, the data has actually kind of shown to be true, and even some of the uh, opponents of this therapy have been coming around, and they themselves are doing studies on this as well. So I hope this, at least, this will, you know, give you a brief overview of uh, sublingual immunotherapy. And, you know, if you want to learn more, I'll, you know, there's uh, other meetings you can attend uh, and in addition to also kind of finding the right allergist to refer. Because I, you know, similar to you, I, I do quite a bit of general dermatology. And one of the most frustrating things is, uh, you know, you get a young kid that comes into you with very severe eczema, and at least through residency, what I was taught is, at least with the Hanifin criteria, is that the you know, majority of this is barrier issue. You kind of diagnose eczema by pruritus, distribution, um, and chronicity. And you got some minor criteria of Hanifin that describe uh, maybe tendency to get staph infections, uh, uh, Denny Morgan lines. And all the way on the bottom of the criteria, they talk about maybe some sensitivity to environments and foods. And so it wasn't really kind of emphasized. And even among my group, which uh, we have about seven dermatologists in the group that I work in, most of them, you know, people talk to, uh, when the patients ask, you know, is the food causing or the environment causing my eczema? A lot of them just, no, no, you just gotta, you know, gentle skin care, put on the barrier Vaseline up. And some, for the mild cases, sometimes that's enough. Uh, but for the severe cases, uh, you know, most of the time when they come to see you, these little kids have seen a couple dermatologists, seen a, um, uh, seen a couple pediatricians, and been you know looking for an answer. And I agree with Dr. Fleischer. Sometimes you can't give them the you know exact answer, but uh, I think at least this was will give you a different thought process as far as kind of condition of diseases, and not just the sublingual immunotherapy itself. With this uh, at this meeting. I also learned a lot about how to approach patients because I think the way medical uh, fields are going is that we're getting so specialized that, you know, even though dermatology, we kind of see all areas of specialty, you know, we see things related to rheumatology, infectious disease, oncology, uh, allergy. Uh, sometimes we get too blogged uh, uh, in about just looking at the skin and not thinking about the whole patient. So I hope at least the talk will kind of enlighten you a little bit. So before I begin, I think I want to quote uh, the late Bernie Ackerman. I actually had an opportunity to kind of cha train with him. For those of you who don't know uh, Dr. Ackerman, he was a uh, 
somewhat of a controversial figure in immunopathology, or dermatopathology, although he does raise a lot of uh, good questions, and I think that was his main point. He does put some people on the spot at meetings. He would literally raise his hand and challenge the person, almost get into a battle, uh, which is interesting to see, but if you're on the podium, it's not the most pleasant thing. But uh, I think he, you know, at one meeting, he basically went up, because somebody was giving a talk about atopic dermatitis, and he, rose, he raised his hand. He said, what is atopic dermatitis? How can you describe it? So the people went through the Hannafin criteria. He said, what is that? That's just a bunch of description of, uh, you know, um, symptoms. And he said, what does that really mean? And I think, you know, part of it is true. I think when we see uh, eczema, we say, well, you know, you have eczema, and Parents is like, what is that? He said, oh, you just have sensitive skin. You tend to react, and that's it. You know, and I, I think we, we, we may be doing a disservice not kind of educating the patient um, about their environment, about maybe some food relations, especially for the more severe cases. Uh, I think the most mild cases, uh, what we're, we've been taught, uh, have been fine. You give a little topical steroid, gentle skin care, lotion, and you should be fine. But the more severe cases where we kind of scratch our heads are the ones that may benefit from uh, at least this approach or at least this thinking of uh, attacking a skin disorder. All right. So before we kind of go into the nitty gritty, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the, what suppression immunotherapy actually is. Uh, and to understand this role of immunotherapy, it's important to look at the history. Uh, they always say, look at the history, you understand things a lot better. Um, and what I kind of learned from the uh, meeting, uh, kind of attending in Wisconsin, is the efficacy of SLIT, which is uh, you know, quite, quite surprising. And you probably saw some of the data that Dr. Fleischer kind of pointed out earlier with antihistamines. Some of them were actually very poor. You say, wow, how does that get uh, approved by the FDA? Uh, but sometime it happens. Um, what does uh, immunotherapy have to do with the skin? Uh, and this other aspect, if you, don't, you get nothing else from this uh, kind of talk, this concept of chronic diseases really has helped me over the past couple of years kind of dealing with difficult patients. And, um, and I think we'll kind of make sure we focus on that a little bit. And we'll talk a little bit about protocols for sublingual immunotherapy. There's no real standard at this point. So, you know, I don't foresee everybody kind of walking out to start doing uh, sublingual immunotherapy, but especially for those who are in academic settings, I think it's a great opportunity to kind of uh, put a stamp on uh, immunotherapy from a dermatologist standpoint, because uh, this is not an area that um, a lot of dermatologists are uh, kind of familiar with, and where to kind of learn more about the immunotherapy. So immunotherapy basically just means that we're trying to induce, enhance, or suppress the immune response, okay? Um, there's two major types, the activation and suppression. Most of us do activation already. We give imiquimod or Aldera, Zyclera, and you, know, you put them on AKs, warts, uh, among other things, molluscum, and everything gets red and inflamed. Patient calls you, they say they have flu-like symptoms, because it does cause some systemic response sometimes if it's... Uh, um, broad enough area that's treated. Uh, what we'll focus on is actually more on suppression immunotherapy. Uh, the most common ones uh, that you would do nowadays is actually using the biologics. 
those are uh, you know uh, medication that will downregulate the pro-inflammatory Th1 state in favor of the uh, anti-inflammatory Th2 state. And interestingly, this uh, there is actually a commercial uh, product called GrassX. Okay, this is actually something that's uh, released in Europe, um, and this is a tablet for grass pollen. Uh, you can put under the tongue, uh, and it's actually uh, pretty efficacious. In fact, the data is actually better than antihistamine. So if somebody actually has um, uh, grass allergies, this is actually would be a better thing to do. Although the limitation is that, and as you will find out uh, throughout the talk, is that it is unusual for somebody just to have a very singular allergy. That's unusual. Usually they tend to have a little grass, maybe some trees, a little ragweed, among other things, and these are seasonal things that uh, you may see. So the main point of uh, kind of the suppression of immunotherapy is to tell the body's immune system to kind of chill out so that uh, they don't react. Because inf inf inflammation, as we're kind of learning uh, through all spectrum of diseases, whether it's uh, rheumatologic, uh, cardiovascular, uh, and you know, cutaneous, inflammation sometimes is not a good thing. So where does immunotherapy start, especially suppression immunotherapy? It's actually started probably even prior to our founding fathers arriving on, uh, on Plymouth Rock here. The 1800s, uh, some of the initial uh, settlers had noticed that the American Indians, have you ever seen a picture of American Indians in, uh, in the museums or even in the um, reservation? Back then, they, didn't, they weren't very well clothed, especially in the summer. Uh, and they would kind of go into the forest and do their hunting and uh, uh, bidding, but they would actually notice that these uh, hunters would actually put a small little leaf under their tongue uh, before they run into the forest, and, uh, and it wasn't kind of really known. They did kind of described it. The Indians prescribed that it protects them, and kind of years later, people thought that these were probably uh, erosional uh, or poison ivy leaves, uh, and that actually has been kind of uh, at least quantified in a poster recently in the allergy meeting that they desensitize somebody who has a horrific reaction to poison ivy and uh, what they uh, would do is actually give the poison ivy urochial extract uh, under the tongue over the years and they didn't have any reaction and they will re-challenge the patient uh, to the poison ivy and their, re their reaction was dramatically reduced. So that, that can be done. And in 1877, uh, physicians kind of found out that the mouth mucosa is actually very special. And for most of you who have done uh, rotations in the emergency room or have worked in the emergency room, you know that the uh, nitroglycerin is something that you can place under the tongue. Uh, it works rapidly, and within a second, uh, it kind of helps with uh, angina uh, symptoms. In addition, you can also give lidocaine under the tongue, atropine under the tongue, um, and epinephrine as well. And so if you, uh, you know, Dr. Fleischer is talk, talking about the kid where the parents kind of brought the kid into the pharmacy. Uh, if you're in the office, and you know, most offices probably would have an EpiPen. If you don't have an EpiPen, but you have a crash box that has an ampule of uh, uh, epi, uh, epinephrine, one of the easiest thing to do is actually break open the, uh, the ampule take out a you know, syringe and put a couple drops under the patient's tongue uh, the, of the epinephrine. That actually will kind of get into the bloodstream pretty quick, almost as if you're giving the patient a shot. Okay? So 
the area is, uh, we've kind of known for a long time is very special. And uh, so it, in 1900, there's a New York physician started putting kind of pollen drops into the patient's tongue, you know, kind of building on the uh, information. And also in 1905, another physician desensitized uh, a, uh, uh, kids to uh, dairy, cow's milk, uh, with oraminotherapy. And a couple uh, immunologist allergists uh, in the UK, Dr. Freeman and Nunn, uh, desensitized patients to seasonal rhinitis with injections. And this was when they introduced uh, what we commonly know as uh, subcutaneous immunotherapy, which is uh, what the public is probably more aware of as well. And you know, about nine years later, Dr. Hansel, who was an ENT and a very well-known one, actually discovered that the oral mucosa in itself can absorb, but when you put it under the tongue, it's actually absorbed even better. Um, so, you know, he published some data to suggest that that may be a route of therapy for uh, uh, for these uh, uh, treatment for allergies, but. A big kind of negative study uh, in 1940 by Dr. Feinberg uh, basically almost put the entire uh, research uh, in halt. Um, and you know, if you look back at that particular study, it wasn't very well done, but somehow uh, it, it got entrenched or got brought up in meetings a couple of times. People say, oh, maybe that's not the uh, way we should move. And it wasn't until uh, uh, probably almost 20 years later that the ENT meeting kind of reestablished uh, kind of the teaching of sublingual immunotherapy in their meeting. Up until more recently as well, the, and this is the kind of, it's like our AAD for the dermatologists. This is their American Academy of Allergy and Immunology uh, still kind of rejected uh, sublingual immunotherapy due to the, the negative studies. And um, if you look at when I was looking at the data, major, almost all the data was actually published from European journals. And they actually been doing this probably for almost 30, 40 years at this point. And uh, we're just a little behind. So from 1999 to 2006, there were actually 40 double-blind placebo-controlled studies for sublingual immunotherapy, almost all European, that showed that it was effective. Okay? And you know, up to that point, I said, I, I didn't learn any, anything uh, uh, relating to um, you know, immunotherapy, needless to say, sublingual immunotherapy at all uh, in residency or even in medical school. You learn the concept and that was it. So I think this is uh, you know, the point that it's important to kind of continue uh, attending meetings and kind of doing some research on your own uh, when you have some, some interesting patients because they're the one that's going to really teach you. So in 1998, uh, World Health Organization actually endorsed uh, sublingual immunotherapy as a viable alternative to injection. And the kind of the gold standard where they kind of put all the data together among multiple studies, the Cochrane meta-analysis report that there's actually a significant reduction in both symptoms and the medication requirement following immunotherapy with, uh, that's placed under the tongue. And, 2007 was the uh, first year that the Otolaryngology uh, Society, these are the ENT docs, uh, published uh, guidelines offering sublingual immunotherapy. And after I attended the meeting, I actually went back home and I actually called one of my buddies who was an ENT 
And he, he said, oh, yeah, I know about that. And I said, where did you learn that? He said, we learned in residency. I said, do you do it? He said, not a whole lot. I said, why not? He said, you know, we're, we're busy doing surgeries the whole time. And uh, I think that's part of the, uh, the quandary why this is kind of not quite as popular, is that majority of the doctors that are trained to kind of be familiar with this or train, uh, to do this are ear, nose, and throat. And if you look back in history, ear, nose, and throat was actually a medical specialty, almost like dermatologists way in the days. And it wasn't until later that they, as they advanced, they became more surgical, that they became kind of a medical surgical uh, uh, field. And dermatology is the same way. We're you know, treated skin, skin, skin. And it wasn't until later we started doing more surgeries and cosmetic procedures. And now we kind of have this hybrid uh, uh, field. But I do encourage you to, uh, most of you, to continue to kind of hold on to uh, the general dermatology, because this is not something we want to kind of lose to uh, family uh, practitioners or pediatrician or internists, we want to keep our uh, you know, knowledge and skills relating to the skin. So in 2008, up to now, 2010, NIH actually had looked at um, doing something to study uh, the tremendous rise in uh, nut allergy among kids. And they actually review all the data relating to possible injection immunotherapy. There's some powder immunotherapy. Uh, there's also this patch that just came on recently in the sublingual. And when they looked at the data, uh, looking at efficacy as well as, more importantly, probably safety, that they actually picked sublingual immunotherapy. So that tells you a lot that when NIH looks at all the data, they actually feel that this is actually a safer alternative in terms of treating kids with uh, um, food allergy. So the basic concept is actually to slowly increase uh, the dose of the allergen or the protein uh, and actually to induce immunologic tolerance. And it, the protocol is very different. Uh, the one I basically use, the one I learned, is actually you have to apply this, these drops under the tongue three times a day. It's not so much, it doesn't have to be exact, you know, morning, afternoon, and evening, but about as long as they're about two hours apart. And at least from the you know, information that was provided by uh, the La Crosse Wisconsin group, which they have been doing this for almost 38 years, um, much longer than I have, uh, they, they feel that the number of introduction of this protein is actually probably much more important than the actual dosing. And you'll see kind of one of the argument against sublingual immunotherapy is that the data published, uh, the doses of the protein that's being introduced is vastly, um, uh, it's a very vast kind of range, somewhere between uh, five times to 500 times what is given for subcutaneous injections. So, you know, a lot of times you talk to the allergist, they would say, well, you know, such a big range, you know, how do you know which, what to use? It's maybe it's dangerous, although I think in some ways it's true the application of the protein is probably more important than the actual concentration. So if you look at the two uh, injection uh, together, um, subcutaneous injection is effective. It's been shown, and there's plenty of data, and that's well done by uh, US physicians. Uh, uh, it's highly effective, but the only downside is this constant visit to the physician week after week after week. 
And you know, rarely do you find a kid that's willing to kind of go through that. Adults maybe, but kids, uh, you have a you know uphill battle. And there's actually a lot higher risk of systemic uh, reactions, and that's part of the reason that these uh, the subcutaneous injections are not done uh, for food allergy because there's a very high risk of uh, reactions. Sublingual immunotherapy, on the other hand, is also effective. Um, you know, the data, is, I think, will prove that it's probably just as effective as subcutaneous injections. Um, but I think as more and more U.S. data come out, that'll probably affirm that. This can actually be administered at home, although, uh, you know, what I would do is the patients, I would, even if it's just mainly a topic kind of disease, no anaphylactic reactions, I usually have them come in the office for the initial uh, kind of introduction of uh, the allergen. I have had one, I think one patient who had a little flushing after the uh, introduction, but it went away without any therapy. And it's relatively safe. I put an asterisk next to it, but you know, mainly just to remind you that this is immunotherapy, so it's not uh, um, something you want to do too cavalierly. Uh, the reports, there's been four to five reports of anaphylactic reaction relating to sublingual immunotherapy. And majority of these, they have been some uh, noncompliance with the regimen that's uh, prescribed. Uh, one was, I think, she was supposed to go see the doctor, and the doctor always want them to bring in the, the droplets uh, in with her so they can see how much is left. And she's like, oh, no, I haven't done the drops for a while, and I'm going to see the doctor. Instead of just you know, telling the doctor straight, she wanted to please the physician, so she's like, maybe I'll just do most of it right now. And then she had a reaction. So obviously, you introduce too much protein to you overload the system, you will get a full reaction. Uh, another one was a physician who was actually doing what they called rapid, um, rapid de desensitization. So instead of taking sometimes up to two to five years to desensitize a patient, he said, well, I can probably do this in six months. So he kind of really pushed the dosing, and I think he pushed it too fast before it gives the body's immune system to kind of respond, and it had a reaction. So uh, you have to educate the patients. Uh, and most of the time, if you're telling the parents, especially dealing with kids, they should be fine. Parents are usually pretty cautious. Okay, so we kind of talked about, uh, about a bit about this already. The, the only thing I'll point out on this is that the slit is actually interesting because you can actually do a pre-mix of allergens, whereas the injections, you kind of limited to uh, only a few allergens because it's uh, the high, uh, a high chance of um, pretty severe reactions. Uh, you've probably seen people, actually one of my um, uh, billing team actually was going to see an allergist and I had told her about the sublingual immunotherapy. The insurance doesn't pay for these drops. So she was like, oh no, no, it's okay. My insurance pays for the injections. I'm gonna go ahead and get the injection um, material and bring it to the office and they said, you can give it to me. I said, okay. So I kind of gave her the injection. This is for you know, seasonal stuff. And the next day, her arm was, you know, twice the size. She's like, what happened? I said, well, you know, I, I'll call the allergy. He said, oh, that's normal. That happens sometimes. And, um, but that's something that you usually don't see with sub, uh, sublingual immunotherapy. So these are kind of even data that's uh, kind of published saying that due to the advantageous safety profile of sublingual immunotherapy that may be favored 
especially doing uh, treating uh, food allergies or allergies that could be potentially uh, kind of fatal. So this is a schematic of uh, subcutaneous immunotherapy. You basically get an introduction of an allergen. The dendritic cell picks up the protein, presents it to a, na a naive T cell, and that uh, naive T cell, either through interleukin-10 uh, interleukin to try to downregulate uh, the Th1 response, or via IgG4, which is a suppressive IgG, uh, to suppress the response of these effector cells. Okay? I put this diagram up, not because we're actually learning about sub, uh, cutaneous immunotherapy, but it's to point out the major difference. For sublingual immunotherapy, you actually would have a tremendous increase in the number of dendritic cells. When they did electron microscopy under the tongue, they act, there was actually about a 10 to 20-fold increase in the number of dendritic cells there. And what's also interesting is that there's almost that complete absence of effector cells. So the basophil, um, uh, histamine-releasing cells, uh, mast cells, are, were kind of non, uh, not present. So it's almost like an ideal space to introduce antigen. And uh, so I think part of that has to do with why there's so little reactions when you in introduce uh, proteins. So if you think about it, the outside of the skin, uh, the other area of the body that gets exposed to more external proteins, probably the lining of our gut, okay, from our mouth, esophagus, down to our intestines. And our skin, you know, especially with the epidermis and its barrier, not, not a whole lot penetrate. And if you've seen contact dermatitis, you know, if somebody who has uh, contact dermatitis and nickel, if it's loosely kind of worn around the neck, sometimes that doesn't affect them too much, but if they have it around their watch or their ring, which applied directly to the skin where you get a much higher concentration of allergen, um, they get a reaction. So I think the uh, epidermis itself uh, actually does a pretty good job kind of blocking uh, uh, a, you know, protein introduction and for the, for the times when they kind of have to try to introduce it, there usually have to be some type of abrasion. Um, you know, for those of who do more cosmetics, microdermabrasion uh, on top of the skin helps with PDT absorption. But prior to that, if you don't microdermabrase, the, you know, the stratum cornea actually does a pretty good job kind of keeping things out. So the unique characteristic of sublingual space is what um, makes this area special. And you can see, you know, there's so many T cells, uh, as well as um, lack of dendritic or lack of effector cells. And that, again, speaks to the fact that why, why this area is probably a lot safer when you introduce uh, foreign proteins. So the, the way to do this is um, basically they, they kind of went uh, about uh, different ways to introduce the protein. Um, they initially started with these little droplets, but they felt like that the droplet was very imprecise. When you accidentally push too much, you can get double or three times the uh, protein than you would uh, want to give the kid, and that may be very dangerous. So they actually worked with a German company that introduced this special kind of droplet 
that it's almost like the droplets that you prescribe when you do the retina micro, when you pump it once, a specific kind of droplet comes out. Uh, but this is kind of designed for uh, liquid, obviously. And you basically lift up your tongue and pump once, and that's it. The protein is mixed in glycerin, so it's actually a little sweet. So kids actually don't mind it at all. But my daughter's on it, and my son is actually on it as well, but it's for environmental stuff, not so much for foods. And uh, you basically have them hold it and count to 20 uh, or 30 seconds. And you can actually find the antigen in the area for up to uh, 20 hours if you're looking for it. So what happens there? Uh, when you introduce this protein, again, the dendritic cells uh, reacts with the protein. It processes it and causes the T cells to differentiate and downregulate, again, the Th1 um, uh, response in favor of the Th2 response. So as that happens, you actually see a decrease in IgE synthesis. And this, all this data was actually mostly published by uh, allergists, so they tend to follow IgE a lot. Um, and IgE is actually a very slow responder. When you initially do the treatment, the IgE doesn't actually budge too much. And usually after six months to a year, then you start to see a decrease. So just because you're uh, doing the treatment and then you, when you uh, redraw the blood and you say, well, how come it hasn't gone down? Uh, that doesn't mean that it's not effective, okay? Uh, there are ways to actually measure IgG4, which is a suppressive IgG, uh, although when we do an IgG titer via uh, lab work, it kind of encompasses all four IgG subtype. So uh, that's required kind of a special lab, so most people don't do it. So sometimes you may even see a spike in certain IgG, um, despite the fact that they're improving, it may be related to the IgG4. And there's been studies in academic centers that have shown the specific IgG4 for a particular allergen has increased with immunotherapy. So one other kind of interesting thing that the um, allergist in Wisconsin kind of taught me was that when you treat some allergen with subluminal immunotherapy, you improve other untreated allergen as well. So sometimes when you see somebody and they have all sorts of different allergies, you don't have to treat them all. You treat a couple ones that are not so severe, usually the severe ones alone, and you treat the moderate ones, and usually as they improve, the severe ones will come down, and that makes a lot of sense. Because if you're down-regulating the uh, immune response, everything else kind of comes along, and if you're kind of turning the key and making the immune system more TH2 favored, this actually will improve as well. So this is kind of the efficacy um, data. So when they did the Cochrane review, this is for allergic rhinitis, and we're just trying to extrapolate data because there really isn't a whole lot of data for subluminal immunotherapy relating to the skin, okay? Uh, so this is allergic rhinitis. You can see the symptom reduction uh, is actually pretty impressive. And if you look at the overall kind of nasal corticosteroids, antihistamines, leukotriene receptor antagonists, the data is not that great, okay? Uh, some of them may be higher, some of them lower, but uh, and these were FDA approved. So I want to kind of touch on, you know, why we want to, as dermatologists, intervene a little bit too, because, uh, you know, eczema can be very debilitating, uh, although 
One other aspect that we see a lot in kids is that you see a kid with bad eczema. Usually the mom say, oh, he's got you know, some type of uh, uh, reactive airway disease and he's on inhalers and he's had that since he was young. Those are the kids that hopefully we'll be able to help by at least pointing in the right direction or educating them. The, when you look at uh, the data for severe reactive airway disease, kids who tend to have multiple um, episodes of uh, severe reaction to asthma, where they read it, needed to go into the ER and nebulizers, the whole bit, uh, over their lifetime, there's actually a very slow kind of reduction in their lung capacity and lung volume as a result of the chronic inflammation. Okay? The inflammation kind of destroys the, um, uh, the spaces where the air can kind of be trapped, so you're actually losing volume. And the only thing that tend to alter that natural progression is actually immunotherapy. And uh, that's been proven, although I think as a whole, uh, if you talk to, if you see a kid that has, or even a teenager that may be able to do shots, if they're actually uh, have you know, pretty severe eczema and asthma, most of them are not on immunotherapy. Most of them are on maybe a nasal steroid, a leukotriene inhibitor, and maybe a, a rescue inhaler or nebulizer at home. So uh, I think that's something that um, I think the allergies may have to do a better job. And I think from our standpoint too, if we're kind of dealing with a whole patient, we should educate them as well. So the, with atopic dermatitis, you know, when we, when we prescribe these steroids and, you know, in the old days we thought we found the magic bullet with elodil and protopic and then, you know, they published some study that scared the crap out of us and it, was okay, and it ends up being probably not quite as serious, but then you fear they, you know, they start doing commercials on night, uh, just like they do Accutane. They start doing that with elodil and protopic, you, you start to kind of get hesitant about prescribing those medications. And once you talk to a parent about these black box warning, a lot of them are like, what, why are you prescribing this to me? You can try to talk it down, but once you mention the black box, sometimes they get scared off. So how long do you treat? Um, there's no kind of clear data. Uh, usually what they suggest is that you treat until you can, uh, at least with food, unless you can, until you can challenge the patient. Uh, I have been, I'm actually somebody uh, been using sublingual immunotherapy since the time I was the first guinea pig. I say, well, if I'm going to try myself. If I'm still standing after a couple months, maybe I'll start on my kid. Uh, so I have pretty bad seasonal allergies. And for those who have worked with me in the office, usually starting spring all the way until probably late fall, I get the trees, the grass, and the ragweed. So usually I'm on you know one of those forms of antihistamine Dr. Um, Dr. Uh, uh, talked about earlier, but there are days when I need it more than one. And uh, I've been doing the sublingual immunotherapy for about, this is my third year. Um, and at this point, I think this spring, I have taken antihistamines probably less than a handful of times. And there were a couple days when was, I felt a little itchy in the eyes, but not bad. Um, but in the old days, I was sneezing, I was uh, kind of, my eyes were itchy. It's very uncomfortable, and especially you know, when you're practicing sniffing the whole time, the patient kind of said, what's wrong with you? So the benefits seem to sustain after the sublingual immunotherapy is discontinued. Uh, although something I did learn from the allergist in Wisconsin is that you know, when somebody has an allergy, even though they kind of quote unquote outgrown it, 
sometimes there can be reactivation when the body is stressed. Okay, and this, you know, Dr. Fleischer talked about stressful events and, and stress, you know, it's not just being hospitalized. We've seen plenty of patients not hospitalized that kind of have other stress-induced uh, diseases, but uh, you can, you know, put a kid who's had food allergy and, you know, done very well through high school and actually leaves home and goes away for college and gets kind of stressed out, you know, first month dealing with new people, meeting new people, and being on their own, actually will get, start getting itchy or start getting some symptom when they eat the uh, this offending agent. And that usually will kind of improve as the stress level decrease. And that we'll kind of talk about, you know, because I said, how does that make sense when we talk about the chronic disease uh, kind of paradigm, uh, you understand, at least it makes more sense for me when I, uh, when I saw that. So we kind of talked a little bit about this, but it's just to reemphasize the fact that sublingual immunotherapy is very safe. And, uh, you know, if you talk to a immunologist allergist, one of the big things they want to try to avoid is that, you know, I don't want the patients to be home and doing this and get into trouble. And that's true. So I think education is important. And I don't think this should be something that would be outside of uh, a, you know, kind of a uh, restriction by the medical uh, profession, so I don't think it should be an over-the-counter product where the patient says, oh, I think I'm allergic to this, I should do this drop. But under the supervision of a physician, I think it's a very uh, good treatment. So of all the data that's out there, there's really only one uh, study that was um, done by allergists on sublingual immunotherapy relating to atopic dermatitis. So. We're like, great, one study. So hopefully, you know, maybe we'll stimulate some minds and we'll have a few more studies out there in the, in the near future. So what they did was they looked at, um, I think, at least 56 kids with uh, what's considered uh, mild, I think they did a whole gamut, mild, moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. And they randomized them to, uh, let's see, So the ages are 5 to 16. They randomize them to uh, one month of observation, so almost, almost a washout period. And these eczema to dust mites is actually confirmed by uh, skin prick tests as well as RAST, okay, so the IgE. They put them into two randomized groups of equal proportion. Two drop out because they actually had a kind of more severe eczema and uh, systemic symptoms but 26 made it through the treatment group. Uh, six dropped out from the placebo group. Uh, one moved, one just didn't want to do the drops because it was annoying, and a couple didn't show up, maybe because they weren't improving, that they decided, ah, I don't want to follow through with it. They did this for about 18 months, okay? So then they look at the, uh, the eczema score as well as look, look at how much medication was actually used uh, during that period of time. And they also did a subgroup analysis, which is actually kind of interesting, looking at mild to moderate atopic dermatitis to more severe atopic dermatitis and compare that to kind of placebo. The way they did it was slightly different than what I learned. They actually kind of do an escalation of dosing and they do it uh, three times a week. So we kind of emphasize the importance of the number of uh, protein introduction is actually more important than the actual dosing, and doing the three times a week probably was not the most ideal, but this is what was done. 
and they, we, they actually looked at the uh, actual ratio of how much protein is introduced to uh, these kids compared to somebody if they were giving it for subcutaneous injection. And this one is about nine times uh, uh, the subcutaneous injection. So you certainly are introducing a lot more protein, but you're not getting the same reaction uh, as you would uh, with a subcutaneous injection. So interestingly, you uh, see that the initial uh, about nine, nine weeks, on the, on the ninth month, you kind of see a divide among the treatment group uh, compared to the placebo group, and it was uh, statistically significant. So they said, that looks great, okay, right in there. Okay. But then when they do the subgroup analysis, the uh, improvement was actually kind of seen in the at um, atopic group that was mild to moderate, uh, but when they looked at this, when they looked at the severe group, you actually lose the uh, improvement. So that was kind of interesting. And this is just another table to kind of illustrate the kind of severe group. You're, uh, you're not having any uh, statistically significant uh, improvement. And again, just kind of dividing the, the data where you see here, there is improvement in 18 months, but on the severe group, there's overlap of the uh, p-value, so there's no statistically significant improvement there. So why is that the case? And again, this is just a, uh, the information provided through uh, numerical value. Again, look at side effects. A couple have uh, little fatigue, headache, and maybe local swelling uh, during the buildup phase. And you can kind of see, you know, you say, well, just give me a couple drops under the tongue. does give some systemic reaction. So it's not just, uh, uh, you know, it's drinking uh, like water. So the important thing is to look at is that what they see is that we concluded that slit uh, with a standardized mite extract can be considered effective in children with moderate, mild to moderate atopic dermatitis, but the benefit for the severe form was inconsistent. So the question we ask ourselves is, why is that the case? Um, I think one thing you look at is that, is it biased against um, the severe cases because of the infrequent use? If they used it more frequently, would that be a, been a better study and get a better result and maybe even an earlier or wider uh, improvement? The other thing you have to think about is these are patients that are um, seen by allergists. And you know, sometimes people present to allergists uh, for eczema but majority of the time they present to allergists for other things, for asthma, rhinitis, sinusitis, ear infections. Um, so these are patients that, especially the severe ones, that probably have uh, kind of co-allergies to other things that may not be quite as well controlled just treating one allergen. And, and it's very difficult to kind of do a study where you introduce multiple allergens because when you're, the best study is when you control all the other factor and just modify one. And unfortunately, allergy is not so clear cut, and these studies are difficult to do. But I think this, uh, if they repeat the study, either to increase the uh, frequency of application of the uh, sublingual aminotherapy, even lengthening the time too, in addition to um, kind of try to find patients that have the same co-allergen and may have a, a better result. But then the question also we have to ask is, does this work for adults? 
Um, you know, usually it's the other way around. They do a study in adults, and we say, oh, kids are just little adults, and we give them the same medication. But I think uh, you may be able to extrapolate that, especially with uh, the data out there. I did start, there was a patient that presented to me with very severe eczema kind of in the airborne distribution, right on the face and hands. And I said, you know, when do you have this? He said, I have this probably a little all the time, but recently it flared up. And um, I said, what? You know, what was different recently that caught, he said, I don't know, I've been doing the same thing. And I said, have you done anything different that uh, you could have been exposed to at least airborne? And he said, oh, I've been cleaning the attic for my mom. And apparently he had a very severe uh, dust mite allergy. And apparently he also is a salesperson that travels quite a bit um, in the Midwest. And he said he always rolls down his window. And whenever it happens, he drives through dusty area. He does get a reaction. Uh, that he never thought that was related to that, uh, the exposure. So the other aspect we want to look at is the other allergens and how we can modify those. Uh, does slit work for atopic dermatitis relating to food allergen? And you know, I think Dr. Fleischer mentioned earlier that urticaria, um, if somebody comes in with chronic urticaria, a lot of times it's not food related. Uh, you know, usually it's something else. Because acute urticaria is very easy to diagnose. You probably don't need a medical degree to, get, uh, to figure out what's causing the, uh, the problem. Somebody eats something an hour later, they kind of swell up. You say, well, that's it. Unfortunately, you know, atopic dermatitis or dermatitis in general, if you can even look at contact dermatitis uh, as a um, model, these are more delayed hypersensitivity reactions. And the... You know, when most of you have probably done uh, patch testing, and when you do patch testing, you don't put the patch on and have the patient sit an hour and you kind of peel it off, take a peek. You send them home. You send them home, bring them back, take a look, send them home again, and bring them back again to check on delay reactions. And I think that's the same thing that's true for atopic diseases that may be related to um, foods that I think in those cases, it's not so easy to discern for the parents. And I think there's been some, there's a recent study that was published, for, especially for severe atopic dermatitis, that uh, about a third of the kids have some form of uh, uh, food allergy. So the question also becomes, what does SLIP work for? It seems like it works for not just IgE-mediated diseases, but it seems like it works for IgG-mediated as well as delayed hypersensitivity reaction. And so that kind of begs to, uh, for us to maybe even for our field to do some you know, additional study with contact allergens, because uh, there has been one done for nickel uh, as well as uh, poison ivy, as I mentioned earlier, uh, for these contact allergens, try to desensitize patients. You know, maybe some things are easier to avoid. Uh, you know, it's easy for us to say, but if somebody is allergic to certain, I guess, hair dye, uh, you tell them, oh, don't dye your hair, maybe it's okay, but in certain parts of the uh, country, that may be very debilitating for them, uh, as well as, you know, wearing costume jewelries or, oh, you know, these were given to me, there's some sentimental value, maybe worthwhile to kind of consider to sensitize, at least to offer to the patient. So this is the basic limitation kind of the study. And I think if we 
because of the fact that we can't isolate allergens so much is that the future maybe is to do multiple allergen studies uh, and you know, kind of bite the bullet saying we can't isolate one particular allergen. So the lack of acceptance uh, of causal relationship in topic dermatitis patients, you know, we learn, you know, barrier um, theories, humidity theories, you know, we tell patients to kind of turn off the humidity, uh, pollen-related dust mites, bacteria, you know, I think allergies are very big in uh, the super antigen staff, because uh, every time you send them a, a topic patient, even though it doesn't look like it's, um, uh, in, you know, impetigenized or infected, you know, maybe they're colonized, so they usually go on an antibiotic. So, you know, different fields practice slightly differently, but I think they may all contribute and accept, uh, unfortunately, the way we, uh, as a field, among dermatologists, we kind of go and say, you have eczema, here's a steroid, thank you, and then that's it. I think sometimes, uh, especially with the kind of severe uh, patients, a little extra time and asking the right question may be very helpful. So this is something that I think is very important, and uh, the concept of chronic illness. Um, I don't think I quite uh, understand that concept. I think if you think back on it, it said, oh, it makes a lot of sense, but in terms of presentation, I'd never seen it presented until I was, uh, attended this meeting. And I think in many ways, it, it, uh, it will heighten your clinical ability to diagnose diseases. And in fact, after I attended this meeting, uh, you know, in residency, I might have seen one case of uh, dermatitis herpetiformis or celiac disease. Since I attended this meeting within the last three years, I, I diagnosed four patients with celiac, but only one had a documented um, uh, dermatitis herpetiformis by biopsy. The rest of it was just very nonspecific kind of inflammation. And, uh, you know, talking to the patient, the first one was a patient who presented, has seen a multiple dermatologists move in the area, he said, you know, I'm here for my uh, eczema flare. I've had eczema since I was young, and it always flares once in a while, and you see, you know, very impetigenized, kind of crusty. He's been scratching at it. He said, all I need is a little steroid uh, and some antibiotics, and it'll get better, and they'll flare up again a couple months from now, and then we'll do this again. And he does have some history of uh, atopic diseases in the family. And interestingly, you know, he was about to go on a... Uh, on a cruise, and I said, you know, what, what, make it, what makes your uh, condition better or what makes it worse? Have you been able to tell anything? And he said, not really. It just kind of have a mind of its own. It flares up at time. He said, the only thing I noticed was that uh, it does flare up when I hang on my buddies and we drink. So, and once I heard that, I said, interesting. So I said, you know, I started asking about history, but he had no GI symptoms. All he has was this odd rash, and it was actually biopsy previously, and it was a nonspecific kind of, you know, impetigenized, uh, you know, subacute dermatitis and not, no, uh, you know, classic signs of dermatitis epidermis. So I said, well, why don't we just kind of check a lab while we ran the lab, and he was floridly high. And unfortunately, when I got the lab back, he was on the cruise. So, and he didn't give me an email. I couldn't contact him. So, of course, he came back. He said, oh, my, my uh, eczema flare. I said, well, I think it's probably not related you know, to just atopic dermatitis, you may have uh, kind of celiac disease. And I don't think it's always a classic kind of presentation on the skin. And we certainly have seen very atypical presentation of common diseases as well as uh, vice versa. And so he, I saw him probably 
I sent him to a GI doc, and the GI doc said, oh, you're positive. You go into gluten, I said, maybe he needs to be scoped and stuff. Yeah, I said, ah, you already got a diagnosis. He was like well over 100 of the anti-gliden antibodies. And he said, just go on a um, gluten-free diet and follow up, follow up with your dermatologist. So he came back two months later, uh, completely clear. And um, a few months after that, his sister came in. And his sister came in, and I, you know, the mom came in with her. And she's uh, maybe 10 years younger than he is. And I said, well, what are you doing here? You know, how can I help you? She said, I have no complaints, but you diagnosed my son with celiac. I just want to have her checked. I said, does she have any symptoms? She said, no. But everything my son gets, he event she eventually gets. I said, okay. I said, okay, we'll, we'll run a test. But I said, she doesn't have any GIs, nothing. So her numbers were elevated too. And uh, so you're kind of doing your patient a service just by asking a, you know, a few specific questions and, and kind of putting, putting the dots together, basically. Uh, and recently, I have had two patients who presented to me. One actually presented for keloids. This is... Um, you know, we're classically taught that celiac is a condition of northern European uh, heritage. And these two African-Americans completely deny any northern European heritage. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, nobody in my family, you know, is even closely from there. So um, one presented for a keloid injection after she had a couple's uh, shoulder procedure done and they keloid up. And You've probably all seen these patients who come in and under the medication and your review system list, it says C list attached, right? So she had two lists. So it was a list, and I turned the back and it was completely filled. I said, wow. I said, how can you have so many things? And she was very detailed. She kept every, you know, she said, this happened to me. I was put on this medication. So she had, you know, she was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome. She had, you know, allergies to foods, the environment. She had, uh, you know, some, they said she, maybe she had some type of mental disorder, uh, joint aches and um, fibromyalgia. So all these, you know, like, I was like, really? This is a whole lot of medication. I said, how is your stomach? He said, it's very finicky. Sometimes you get gassy. Do you get other rashes? No rashes. I said, why don't you go to your uh, internist, ask him to check a, uh, next time they draw your blood, go ahead and check a, um, a celiac panel. And... Um, she came back for the injection a month later, and she said, I'm positive. I said, really? So I said, did they take you off some of the medications? She said, not yet. I said, why don't you see in the next couple months how many of the medication they put you on you can come off? And I think when I saw her maybe two months ago, because I think that was the last cortisone injection that we did, she was, she was down to one page of medication. It was still not great, but uh, a lot of her symptoms that were related to these nonspecific entity of fibromyalgia may be related to the immune complex deposition relating to celiac. So uh, kind of thinking, uh, you know, a little outside the box, sometimes it's helpful. I don't, I'm not a person who goes zebra hunting all the time, but I think in the right patient, uh, it's important to ask the appropriate question. And the last patient is uh, another, um, another patient who presented with just nonspecific dermatitis. It almost looks like follicular uh, eczema. You see these patients very itchy, just kind of, uh, kind of little bumps, and she's been scratching, gets worse uh, with humidity. So they told us she had eczema, and she was put on um, a bunch of topical steroids, and they weren't very effective. And she was put on uh, you know, systemic steroids to help a little bit, and it came right back. 
and she was recently diagnosed uh, with uh, mental disorder again. And they, they were going to put her on an antidepressant, and you know she was just kind of on her, uh, you know, on her last uh, step. She was like, you know, this is very uncomfortable. I don't know what's happening to me. To me. And, and I asked her about her diet. She said, you know, not a whole lot. Sometimes I get a little, you know, uh, little change. And she said, in fact, I actually have been on the gluten-free diet, and I felt worse. I said, really? I said, a, a kind of a complete gluten-free diet? He said, yeah, I would just kind of avoid uh, gluten-free um, uh, or use gluten-free pasta only. I said, you know, I still think we should check it. And hers was through the roof. And I said, you know, when you test the patient, you, don't, you know, if you're thinking about this, kind of doing the celiac panel testing, you need to make sure they don't change their diet. A lot of times you tell the patient, they're like, oh, maybe I have that. And if you have a neurotic enough patient, she'll change everything and kind of go off take, eating any gluten, and the test will actually come back uh, you know, false negative. So make sure they continue their diet, or if they say, well, you know, I don't really even like bread, that may be a sign, but go ahead and have them uh, eat maybe two slices of regular bread every day, before, maybe for a couple weeks before the test. And that at least will kind of affirm the, uh, uh, the test to be something that will be accurate. So the two key questions you want to ask patients is that, or even ask yourself, is that what is this patient getting too much off that's not good for them, or what are they getting not enough off that's good for them? So the, this is kind of goes back to the fact that why some of the studies did, did not show result is that treating only one isolated factor in somebody with multiple problems is probably not going to improve them uh, to the point where it would be statistically uh, significant. And the multiple causation is applied to a very complex patient. And usually these are the complex patients that kind of keep you in the room and, you know, your nurse is telling you, you know, got to hurry up, you got, you know, three patients waiting. So I think educating these patients and doing multiple visits, you know, saying, let's, you know, let go, have them go home, do a diary on how their symptoms are or what they've been eating, sometimes is helpful. This total low concept is taught to me by Dr. Uh, George Croker uh, from Wisconsin. And basically, talk about the concept of there are different loads on the body. Okay, we kind of know uh, the, the concept of actually having bacteria affecting us, uh, allergen affecting us, but food is actually probably the most common protein that we're introduced to. Okay, and we accept the fact that a lot of diseases like eczema, uh, acne vulgaris, uh, alopecia areata, um, even urticaria are stress-induced, but a lot of times you're like, ah, stress is stress, but sometimes even a little bit of stress in the right setting will push the patients over the edge. So somebody who has maybe mild um, kind of allergies, okay, have my allergy may kind of require additional, um, additional uh, education on how to eliminate some of those loads. So I'll kind of go through this quickly here. So this is a concept. You, you know, throughout the week, you're fine. When you push over the load, you get disease, okay? And, you know, when we take antibiotics as dermatology, we provide a lot of antibiotics, and that actually alters the permeability of the intestines, and that leads to more protein introduction to the uh, intestines. So uh, that sometimes can contribute to the increase in exposure to protein as allergies. So I think the importance to kind of think twice before giving long-term antibiotics. 
And this is kind of a schematic that, that kind of illustrates when you're trying to treat the patient, you're trying to balance them. And that's actually very similar to the Eastern medicine theory of the yin and yang uh, theory of balancing uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, immune system. All right. So I'll kind of go through this because this is pretty important. One trigger can cause many symptoms. So we can accept a celiac can cause all sorts of problems. And probably there's other foods I can do. We're just not looking for it. And I think in the patient that I illustrated earlier, they actually have a bunch of this caused by one trigger. So this is what happens with the atopic march. You have a kid with eczema. Over time, we're just putting steroids, giving them inhalers. Over time, they develop other allergies, and it kind of just marches on. So we can kind of alter that progression. It's very important. So I'll just touch on this real quick, because we, we're really not going to do this. The protocol for uh, sublingual immunotherapy is, is not set. So at this point, basically, we're, this is more of a concept that you should be familiar with, because more and more information is going to come out. And if you do want to learn a little more about this, there are some websites and, uh, where uh, you can go to, as well as talk to some of the allergists, uh, especially the ENT allergists, or maybe a well-educated immunologist allergist about sublingual immunotherapy. Thank you.